Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. And today we got a Q&A. Got a lot of good questions from the podcast form in the description that people have been utilizing, which is really awesome. Yeah, I thought of this really clever idea to actually share the form on my story every week. Yeah? Yeah. That's good. I know. Reminded myself. I put a reminder. There we go. Huge reminder, guy. Let's go. I'm not, but now I am. I made it reoccurring, too. So every Sunday, I'm just going to post on my story and say, drop a question. But I will say, it was funny. So uh, I think there was five people who DM'd me back a super long question. Damn. And I was like... That's not the point. That's not the point. It literally <laughs> says, click this link. Yeah. You know, and, and just so you guys know too, um, yes, I can screenshot that and send it, but we have a system and it's way easier to stay organized if you just click the link and fill out the form and we're not asking for your email, so it's not like you're going to get spammed by anything because um, I know sometimes people do that. Just put your first name. Yeah. If you want to, you can yeah. even put, I mean, you could put Willy Wonka for all I care. Yeah. Put something. Um, but yeah, fill that out. You can also access that in the description of this podcast, as well as the link in my bio. Um, and real quick, before we get into the show, I just want to mention a couple things that are pretty important, and that is that we have so much free shit on the website for you to consume. So if you like this podcast, you will like all of that as well. You can head over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash a whole bunch of stuff slash guides to get all the free guides, like our 87-page nutrition manual, our 101 macro-friendly recipe guide, the physique training manual, or performance bodybuilding. You can check out the top videos from our YouTube hosted there to see which ones you want to uh, check out, but make sure you also go to youtube.com slash Cody McBroom one to subscribe and get all those. We drop two a week. The podcast is hosted there. And of course we have hundreds of free articles. Last but not least, we also give, uh, we have two pages dedicated to online coaching and the Taylor trainer app. So if you want to work one-on-one with us or use our systems in the gym, literally to get the best results possible, you can head over there and you can apply or download the app and start training with us immediately. Now let's answer some questions. Yep, let's get right into it, guys. We have the first one coming from Abby Brookshire. It says, how and when should you train until failure without putting an excess stress on your body? In other words, how do you know when you should, quote-unquote, leave some rep in the tank or until failure without causing injury or fatigue? So I think that there's multiple ways to answer this question. I mean, number one, how do I? how do you know when to take it to failure? I guess like how often should you take it to failure? Number one, depends on your goals. Uh, if you have strength-based goals, I think you should take your training to failure far less often. If you have health and longevity-based goals, I think you should take your training to failure far less often. Both of which because the injury risk does not weigh the reward. If you're just trying to be healthy and live longer, you don't really need to push yourself to failure. There's no point in risking injury right? And if you are doing things for health and longevity, you probably shouldn't be choosing exercises that are potentially dangerous anyway. But besides the point, don't go to failure. There's just really no point. Um, If you are chasing strength gains, uh, the injury risk is typically higher because you're working in a higher uh, load. So a closer uh, proximity to your one at max. So higher percentage of absolute strength, which means the heavier the load, the more likely the injury risk, obviously. Um, 
and your form is more likely to be compromised. It, it's easier to gauge if your form is about to be compromised if you're failing at rep 10 than if you're failing at rep 2. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you do one rep and you get it and then you go to do another rep, but it's so heavy that your form can go from perfect to shit in a matter of a single rep versus when you're grinding out 10 full reps, you know when you're getting too close to failure more easily. So with strength-based training, I don't think you should. And it's also important because most research done on proximity to failure or per, the percentage of your one rep max and intensity for strength gains, it, it, it's pretty well documented that you don't need to go to 100% max effort to gain strength. You can stay in that like 80 to 90% of one rep max rep range and get just as much progress. So instead of doing one rep at 100% or even 95%, do a one rep at 90% of your one rep max. It's going to be safer, way less taxing, um, and you're still going to get the same neurological strength benefits as you would for going 100%. And if you get any less than the same, it's so small that it won't matter anyway because going from 90% to 100%, 100% is so much more taxing that you're going to end up having to take more days off to recover from it anyway. So by the end of the month, quarter, year, yep. you do less work. Um, hypertrophy, there's more research to support going to failure being important or getting closer to failure. Um, I also think it's safer and I think it's easier to manipulate your exercises, meaning that like if somebody's coming to me and they're like, I really want to build quads but back squats kind of freak me out or hurt me i'm like okay cool let's not ever do back squats you don't need to but if somebody's like i want to get really strong it's like damn that's a pretty important lift you know overall if we're trying to build strength you kind of want to do the power lift so it's easier to get away with doing safer exercises and taking it to failure when your goal is hypertrophy or body composition changes in general so even if your goal is fat loss you're probably training for muscle growth or hypertrophy yep um, so that's the first thing is what are your goals? The second thing is your experience level. Um, I think it's, it, it's kind of a, it's a weird thing. Cause I can make an argument for both situations as a newbie. I could make the argument of saying, you know, if you're pretty new to lifting, you probably should go to failure because you don't actually know what failure is like yet. And therefore you need to go to failure to learn how to fail. But also if you take it to an RPE 10 or an RAR zero, so no reps in reserve, you probably actually are at like a two RAR. You probably do have a couple reps in the tank. You just don't realize it because a lot of it is the lactic acid or the mental component of take it to failure. Experience. Experience, right? But at the same time, the likelihood of you getting injured is higher because you can't keep your form, uh, the integrity of your form while pushing the intensity to that spectrum. So there's like two sides of it. And then with advanced individuals, I can make the argument that you shouldn't go to complete failure because as you get more advanced, you're able to increase your intensity so much more. You're stronger, so you're lifting heavier loads. Therefore, going to failure could potentially cause more likelihood of injury. But then I could also make the argument that as you get more advanced, you need a more intense stimulus to continue progressing, and therefore you should go to failure. So it's hard to say, honestly, um, from an experience level perspective. I think it was actually cool when we were talking to Brad Schoenfeld that he said that because that's kind of been my philosophy lately, and I didn't know that was something that he's in. He is a proponent of as well. Yeah, like the whole last About set the same failure. Way, yeah. yeah. Um, so the way I like to do it, and this is how I would recommend most people do it, is you you keep all your sets about one to three reps away from failure, and then your final set on a, a, a number of sets is zero. You go to failure on your last set. And when I say failure, I would I would mean uh, technical failure, not absolute failure. So if I'm doing a bench press, technical failure is when my form is compromised. 
I'm starting to disengage the active muscles. Maybe I'm starting to use more shoulders and triceps than chest. I'm starting to use secondary muscles. I'm compromising. Um, maybe I'm arching my back. It's a shitty rep, but I get it done. I don't hurt myself. Yeah. Absolute failure is the bar stops and it is sitting on my chest because I literally can't lift it off me. Um, now there's times and places to go do uh, like beyond failure sets. So extended sets where somebody helps you. So you do go to absolute failure, but then somebody helps you on the concentric. But most of the time we're thinking of training by ourselves. because We don't always have a spotter. Um, and some exercises, it wouldn't matter. You can't do that. So I like doing that approach because it keeps most of your sets safe, but all still in that proximity to failure where it is like, you're still getting gains, but then you take the last set and you push it so far that you, if there is any benefit, because we don't have enough research to show this. And one of the things Brad said, which I don't know if you guys have heard this podcast yet because it might not be out, but um, you'll hear him talk about this and it's a really, really informative podcast. But he talks about essentially like there's not enough research because most research is like if you're doing four sets of eight on a squat, it's either these people didn't go take any sets to failure. These people took all their sets to failure. And it's like, well, what about taking most of your sets close to failure and then taking the last one to failure? You could squeeze out that little bit that does matter from going to failure without risking the injury and the overall fatigue of overtraining, which is kind of what this person's worried about. I think the other benefit of it is teaching people how hard to go. The amount of clients that I've been seeing getting way better progress lately because I started doing this has been insane. My private clients who I do this with, because what we teach them essentially is that they could go way harder than they realize. So I've been training them at that, like one to two reps in reserve. Then I started going, okay, we're going to go out of four sets. We go three, two, one, zero, or it's like two, two, one, zero. So you leave a couple in the tank. Then you leave just one in the tank because you're starting to get fatigued. And then you just go all out. And after the first week, every single one of them did their last set to failure and goes, I got an extra three reps. And I'm like, okay, so your first two sets weren't two reps in the tank. Because if your final set was, was zero and you got three extra reps above what the rep count was called for, and you've already fatigued yourself from doing three reps, that two RIR was probably like a five RIR, realistically, because that's your most fresh set. So it teaches you how heavy you can actually lift. So think about it like this. If I'm doing four sets of 10, and I have a set, uh, set it up to an RIR of two, two, one, zero over the course of those sets. They get 10 reps with 200 pounds, 10 reps with 200 pounds, saying they're leaving one in the tank. Then they go to 205 and do 10 reps and get one rep left in the tank. Then they keep that 205 because they're pretty fatigued. Or maybe they go 210 to go to zero reps in reserve, and they get 13 reps. They went heavier and got 13 reps. reps. You know what I mean? So for those listening, basically what we're seeing is that it's teaching people that they didn't really understand their proximity to failure, and it allowed them to take those sets of two the next week to actual two reps in reserve, which meant they were doing 225 for 10 and leaving two reps in the tank. And then they kept 225 because the last set, they only get 11 or they only get 10 because they're fatigued from doing more load. But now what happens, by the end of the month, their volume skyrockets without us adding more time in the gym. They're just understanding how hard they could push themselves from an effort perspective. Totally. Um, so I think it's super valuable. And then we're, we're kind of inching out that little bit. Um, and we do that with safe exercises. So on a leg day, I might have a client do a back squat and it says RIR, three, two, one, one. And we don't go to failure because it's a back squat and I don't want them to hurt themselves. But then after that, they have a leg extension and it's two, two, one, zero. And it's like, yeah, go all the way because what's the worst that's going to happen? You don't get the leg extension all the yeah, way. Exactly. It's fall on you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you just have to know like just, and you should instinctively know this as a lifter, what exercises could potentially fuck you up if you took them to failure, mm. you know? And then also what exercises 
can you lift significantly more weight with um, are usually lower rep types of exercises or train multiple muscle groups in the body. For example, a deadlift. You don't go high reps with it, like a deadlift straight from the floor. You can typically lift heavier on a deadlift than you can on most other exercises. And it doesn't just isolate one muscle. Like when you do heavy deadlifts for sets, like three or four sets, you're not like, oh, my hamstrings got it today. You're like, my entire body hurts. You know, like your grip, your shoulders, your traps, yeah. your lats, your glutes. If you're doing it correctly. If you're doing it correctly, yeah. everything hurts. Yeah. So that's a globally fatiguing. It's a very fatiguing exercise, which is also why I'm not a huge fan of putting it in uh, programs for people who are very serious about hypertrophy, right? So like for me, since I train five or six days a week, and I really want to build muscle. I don't do a lot of deadlifts because it's so fatiguing. I wouldn't be able to do five or six days of total hypertrophy for it. Yeah. If somebody wants to just lose fat and we're training four days a week, fuck yeah, I'm doing deadlifts because they're a very taxing exercise. You're going to burn a lot of calories. You're going to get stronger. They're fun. And we're not doing so much volume throughout the week that it's going to make a difference. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of like the nuance of when we look at exercise, how do we know if we should go to failure? Like it's experience level. It's the type of exercise you're doing. It's what the rest of your week looks like because you got to account for, you know, is this going to fatigue me so much that the rest of my week's going to take a hit from it? Um, and then essentially like, when you're placing that throughout sets. I don't think every set should be to failure, but I think there's definitely, I think there's more room to go to failure than a lot of what the research points to right now, mm. personally. Time and place for it. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Good answer. All right, let's move on to the next question. We have one coming from Aiko. Aika, Aiko. Ciao. Would you recommend a tonal for someone who wants a cable machine at home, but it has limited space. No. Um, we're going to keep this question brief and kind of to a different point because I don't have a ton of information on a tonal. Like, I know what it is because somebody asked me about it for the tail trainer purposes. Um, I'm, it? It's like some kind of... Was it this person? No. Oh. Um, <laughs> this is a while back, uh, but and it was on Instagram. Um, but it's like some kind of pulley cable machine and it's it looks very convenient and it's not like I'm, I don't mean to shit on it but this is like to me it's like a Bowflex it's like a new age Bowflex super so people would be like you know there's there's a lot of like strength purists and trainers and people like me who really love this stuff that would shit on a Bowflex and be like mm. a Bowflex is so whack but I also remember I remember when my parents got divorced and my dad was like really trying to get back in shape and all that stuff so what do you he bought a fucking Bowflex yeah at the time, I didn't know any better. Now I look at it, I'm like, you bought a Bowflex? But he was in the garage every day doing a Bowflex, and yeah. he lost weight and got in shape. Yeah. I don't care if he was doing, like, an unoptimal program. At the time, it got him moving, got him training, and he lost weight. Yep. Same thing with Insanity. I remember he went through an Insanity phase. He fell off. He, insanity. Whoa, and then he got back. He, he started doing Insanity, and then he started losing Isn't weight. like Insanity 9 or 90? P90X. P90X. Actually, that's what he did. He that's didn't do Insanity. It, it was yeah. P90X. I'm yeah. glad you said that. Again, I look at P90X, I'm like, yeah, that's that's not very optimal, and it's a little too high intense. His knees started hurting him and stuff like that. But I will say he also lost weight again because he fell off after a couple of years when the Bowflex wasn't working. Um, I also remember coming out and <laughs> seeing him, like, place. he would, like, I'd come out there, and he'd be drinking a beer while doing the Bowflex. I'm like, I don't know how. <laughs> at the time, I didn't think anything. I was yeah. just like, yeah, dad's getting it. Like, <laughs> Coors Light and Bowflex. <laughs> not the answer. Um, but point being is, like, it gets you moving. It gets you moving. Now, if somebody is asking this question to the podcast, I got to imagine they're pretty serious about strength training or interested in getting serious in strength training. And I would say the tonal is not the most optimal thing in my opinion. I think there's far better 
things that you can get. I think it's most things like that are just like convenient, cool things for people who need to move and maybe exercise, but don't want to get in serious shape. So like if you really want to transform your body composition, I don't think any of those things are the answer at all. I think you need to go to a gym, honestly. I think you need to get in the environment. I think you need to get uncomfortable because it challenges your mind or you need to get some stuff to build out a garage gym. Yeah, I would rather you spend, um, instead of spending a couple thousand dollars on a, I mean, how much is that thing? I don't know. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sure you can find it. I don't want to over-exaggerate how much it costs, but I think it's T-O-N-A-L. Oh, I'm looking at it. It just doesn't say the price on Uh, on that web. It's just all advertisement. Uh, three, three, three grand. Okay. That's more than 3,500. So, uh, you could head over to giantlifting.com and use the coupon code TCM five. Um, Damn. fuck you could just stay tuned cause you, we're going to be doing a giveaway soon. Yeah. Um, it actually might be going live very soon as you listen to this cause we're partnering with them to do a giveaway and, uh, you could spend $3,000 there and get. I actually, I did this at the garage gym at my house, Yeah, but I didn't spend nearly that much money. Yeah. Uh, I got. Shannon, a full five to 50 pound dumbbell rack with the rack the giant floor. Yeah. Floor matting, all the bands she needed an ab mat. Um, and then a bench, which also has like the, the leg thing. So you can actually do sit-ups on incline decline. I also went to Lowe's bought mirrors and I bought a fucking treadmill and all of it was like 1500 bucks. Yeah. So not, not three grand. No. Um, I put an assault bike in there too, which I took from the gym, but like you could get all that in your garage and mind you, this is so, so we have a detached garage. It is a one car garage. I think, I don't think it's a two car garage. It's not a huge garage. Mm. So I'm not talking about like, you need to dedicate your three car garage to this like insane gym. Yeah. I'm talking about like a very small space. You could get way more that is way more productive for what you want to do than that. And you could also honestly get everything that I just said. Um, and mind you, the treadmill is a walking treadmill. It's not something you want to do heavy sprints on, especially if you're over 150 pounds. <laughs> it's, it's, it'll probably break. I've yet to run on it, and I'm scared to. But it works for getting my steps Amazon, in. That's for damn sure. Basic. It might actually be. Um, no, Amazon Basics is probably nicer quality, to be honest with you. Um, it was like a $600 treadmill, I think. Not, actually, not even that. I think it was like a $300 treadmill, which is cheap for treadmills. Yeah. But anyway... Um, you could get everything I just listed and you could get like a plate loaded single cable tower for your garage, which I have gotten from Amazon and it worked in my, my garage gym. You probably remember that one. Yep. Um, you just load plates on it instead of a, like a stack. So it's yep. cheaper, uh, bolt it to the wall, uh, just to make sure it's stable. And that worked for curls, push downs, lat pull down, seated poles, all those kind of things. Anything that you can just use one attachment, not two. So you can't do flies with it, but that was you know, 200 bucks, uh, you could do all of this and still save a thousand dollars and you would be so much better off. Yeah. You don't even need the cable thing. Just get all the bands. So, um, and I just gave you a 5% discount code that saves you on all the shipping. So shit, add some plates and barbells in there from giant and you're good. Like, um, I just don't, I think all those things are really fads and I think they're really, really good at marketing. Um, you know, it's like Peloton. Peloton is so amazing at marketing yeah. and they're so good at making you feel like, I mean, it's like Xbox live for exercise. <laughs> yeah. Literally, because you can talk to people. Like, it's really smart. And I don't think it's a bad solution for cardio and shit like that. It obviously doesn't solve your resistance training needs. Yeah. But, man, they're great at marketing. Yeah. You know? And they're great at selling that product. So, I think some of these, like, the tonal. And there's one that's, like, a mirror. And you, like, look in the mirror. And it's, I don't know what, I don't know what you do. (laughs) I don't know what it does. But. Damn. There's some kind of mirror fitness thing that, uh, it's, like, I don't know. But that's, like, even, uh. 
don't spend a ton of money on a scale that tells you your body fat and all that kind of shit because those are inaccurate. Dude, it's called mirror. Literally, M-I-R-R-O-R. Is there a buff guy in the mirror telling me how to train? Yeah. Oh, legit? Yep. Like there's actually a trainer in the mirror? Yeah. That's weird. It's called mirror fitness system. Anyway. Mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is that, Shrek or something? Yeah. I mean, it is, but it's originally from uh, like Shame Snow White. Or yeah, something. there you go. Yeah. Yep. Nice. All right, let's move on to the next question, guys. We the princesses. We, <laughs> we have one coming from Shelly Anisette. I'm probably butchering these names, but that's okay. That's what we do. What is your favorite strength training split and number of days per week for someone training for a marathon? Here's some context. Someone who has been strength training and running for 10 plus years, but for this season, marathon running is the focus. I'm running four times a week, two shorter, one track, and one long run. Four times a week, two shorter, two longer, one long. Wait, what she said? That sounded like five. She's running uh, four times a week. Yep. Two short. Yeah. One track, one long. One track, one long. Okay. Um, I would be strength training two to three times per week full body. And it would be predominantly um, posterior. It would just be posterior dominant in general, to be honest with you. I think that um, at the end of the day, like most of your training needs to be catered to the specific thing that you want to do. So when you're looking at this, if you're trying to like – I think the problem becomes like, why are you strength training first and foremost? Because some people would go, okay, I'm going to do a marathon. I need to do strength training. Well, you don't need to do strength training to be good at marathons. So what you need to do strength training for is to avoid injury risk and or maintain anything that you already have, which means that you also have ulterior goals, which means basically you got results that you care about sustaining or you would like to get a little bit leaner, maybe have some muscle or you just don't want to get like skinny in the process. You don't want to lose the muscle you had. Uh, while training for this marathon. Um, but all of those to say, you don't need that much strength training at all in order to do those things. So if we're just trying to prevent injury from all the running and we're trying to uh, prevent you from losing muscle or looking worse in your pursuit because you want to maintain what you've already achieved, you don't need much mm-hmm. at all. Um, I think training, strength training more than twice a week is going to start presenting recovery issues because you know if you're running four times a week and you're strength training two times a week, that allows you six days a week of activity. I would take that seventh day as an active recovery day, meaning like go for a swim, go on a walk, very low intensity, but blood flow, like get your body moving just for recovery purposes. If you trained three times a week, now you're doubling up. You're doing a two-day probably, which is fine, but now we're starting to commit a lot of time and potentially overuse. Um, and two days a week is nice because it gets it just gets the job done. Two, three days at max, and I would keep it posterior dominant because if you're running a lot, it means your hip flexors and your quads are extremely overactive. Um, it also means that you're most likely in a very protracted upper body position, so your shoulders are rounded forward, which is a better position for distance or speed. I mean, if you look at uh, a track athlete sprinting, they're hunched forward, leaning forward, yeah. shoulders rolled forward. If you look at somebody who's running long distances, um, it could actually be different. A lot of times they actually end up in a very extended position. Um, so in that situation, you might want to train a posterior pelvic tilt because you might be too much in an anterior pelvic tilt, uh, which still means you need to train your core and your glutes. Glutes are uh, posterior chain. Um, and this is where like if I had a sprinter 
I wouldn't focus on it so much because sprinting is so hamstring dominant. Long distance running can be very quad dominant. Yep. So for a long distance runner like this, I'm going to be training the hamstrings and the glutes more than the quads. Um, I'm going to be training training the traps and lats way more than the shoulders and the chest because again, you're rolled forward. Um, so we're thinking like postural stuff, which is going to prevent uh, joint issues, aches and pains. Um, I would be doing a lot of like movement stuff. The squats and everything I would be doing would probably be um, like I would do like poliquin uh, step ups. I would do like um, toes elevated RDLs. I would do heels elevated squats. And I'm saying all these things because I want you to be going knees way over toes. I want you to be going toes up while you do RDLs to stretch the calves during a hamstring stretch. Basically, like the one of the injuries I worry about with runners is Achilles ruptures. And if you're not doing ankle mobility, working on your tissue quality, all those things, you can run into issues. But here's the thing. If you're running four days a week and you're strength training twice a week and you have to do tissue work and mobility work on a regular basis, now we're starting to pile up all the things. So I think most people, what they do is go, well, I'll strength train four days a week and I'll run four days a week. And they forget like all the recovery stuff they got to do to make sure they don't get fucked up. Yeah. And they just do more stress. So um, I would strength train twice a week, full body, posterior chain dominant, meaning the backside of your body, all the muscles on the back. And I would spend uh, a little extra time doing tissue work. Totally. And mobility. I think that's good. Yeah. Cool. All right. We have another one here coming from Carrie Wong. Um, it says, life is expensive and trying to find a way, way to work with a coach in my budget. How many months would you say I need to devote to working with y'all? I'm looking to lose 70 pounds. Uh, it depends on, I mean, it, it does depend on your total current weight because when we talk about rate of loss, we typically factor that off of your current weight. So somebody can tell me they have 70 pounds to lose and I could be like, yeah, you could probably lose anywhere between one to three pounds per week. So then we go, okay, well, what's 70 divided by two? And then that gives you 35 weeks. And then we can say 35 weeks is probably like your average could be faster because you could lose three pounds most weeks you could lose four pounds a week, but it also depends because are you 300 pounds needing to lose 70 pounds or are you 200 pounds thinking you need to lose 70 pounds, you know, two totally different things. Yeah. And then the same token, are you 70 pounds or, or sorry, are you 200 pounds wanting to lose 70 pounds, but probably would only lose 50 because you would build muscle in the process and maybe you're overshooting your goal, which people often do. Like I want to be 110 pounds and you're like 130 would be really healthy. Like, I don't know if you need that, you know? Yeah. That shortens the timeline, you know? Um, so it really, really depends uh, on a lot of factors. Um, I would say a minimum of three months. One, because that's what we require. Uh, but two, not because it's going to only take you three months. It's going to take you longer than that. And the realistic thing is, is y- you would be so much better off working with a coach for three months, getting a great result because you can lose a lot of weight in three months, but you can also learn a ton in three months. Right. And then you are entered into our community. So no matter what, you have some form of accountability with and beyond us. And now we take three months to get you a great result and teach you how we got that result, what factors we manipulated to get that result and why they actually worked. So that after the fact, you can continue doing the same fucking things. And when you need to adjust, you could actually know how to adjust if you needed to. You know, it's not the same as coaching, but if it's a matter of like, I'm either like, so if I say it's going to take you let's say six months at least, six to nine months to lose that and sustain it off, which is probably realistic. You know, six to nine month transformation would probably be a 50 to 70 pound transformation. That's from start to finish of like 
let's get you ready, prime you for the diet, let's progress you all the way through the diet, and then teach you how to sustain the diet after the diet's done, so the reverse diet, um, and then send you on your way to be able to sustain it. That's not unrealistic, but if you're like, fuck, I, I'm, I'm not, there's no way I can afford six to nine months, so I'll wait till I can. Well, now the chances of, of you holding on to that weight or gaining more weight are just increased. And the longer you hold on to that weight, the less likely you are to lose that weight. That's just a fact. The yeah. longer it sits on your body, the harder it is to lose. So I would always recommend do whatever you can. If you can work with us for only three months, get a great result, truly commit to the process, learn everything you can, and then sustain it afterwards. And if you hit a huge plateau four months later and you just have that last 10 pounds to lose and you're ready to hire us again, hire us again. Yeah. Like, I mean... We're results and education, uh, education based, and that's what drives us to teach people. And that's why so many people come to us later on and tell us, like, exactly, you know, we're still where we were. Like, we got the result. I still use the tracker, you know. Yeah. Like, um, I just recently started up two clients that were past clients of mine, and it was really cool because uh, one guy sustained it just intuitively from what we I taught him, but he decided he just wanted to like really dive back into things, and he picked up. Little tracker from me, everything from way back. So it was like old. And uh, he started tracking, doing all that stuff. And then he came to me. He was like, all right, I've been tracking, collecting my data. Now I'm ready to go. And it was cool because when he came to me, he already had all this because he knew that's what I would have wanted him to totally. do first. And then the other person um, <clears throat> is actually Meredith, who is the um, reverse diet transformation on our website that is all over Google. And um, People find us because of her. Honestly, she's the first image on Google when you type in reverse dieting transformation, which is really cool. Um, first blog when you type in reverse diet case study. Um, she had an amazing transformation with me. We worked together for uh, just over a year, and she hit me up year after year. It was like just getting better and better and just learning more and more. And then her husband actually got on board and started using our training programs. They're in the app. They're doing all that stuff. Um, they had a kid, so she jumped back on board because she's mm. like, I had a kid, so as you know, you know, like – um, just gained some weight, ready to get back into it. The baby's, you know, healthy, six weeks pre uh, postpartum, easy birth, quick birth, really quick bounce back. She's like ahead of schedule on everything, being able to train everything because she got in such good shape from what yeah. we did before. Um, and I will say too, like, she looks amazing. She was like, I'm ready to get back to shape and everything. I'm like, you are in shape. Like, you look <laughs> great. So, but it just goes to show you, like, I've worked with a lot of women who are uh, going through pregnancy. And when you train like that, man, that whole process is so much better. Totally. Like your body will just snap back and it will go through the pregnancy part way easier. Um, but nonetheless, these people learn, so they know. And she came back, she's like, I know what the fuck to do, but I have a kid now and I have a busy job and I just want you to tell me what to do. Yeah. So it's it's not a matter of I'm clueless, it's a matter of like- Guidance. I, exactly, and yeah. accountability. So um, yeah, work with us for three months. And and you know what, worst case, like again, tailorcoachmethod.com slash online dash coaching or click the link in the description talk to us for free. Yep. Shit. Like put my name in the, the application. I'll talk to you. Like it's a free call and yep. then we'll decide what the best fit is. I love it. All right. Let's move on to the next one. We have one from Payal S it says, what are some strategies if you want to increase muscle? I'm a 40, well, I'm a 41 year old woman who is skinny fat and trying to increase my muscle besides strength training. What else do you recommend? Especially nutrition wise. Okay, so we've got to jot this down. We will link this in the description of the podcast. We have a whole podcast called Female Guide to Muscle Growth, or the I think it's called the Female Guide to Muscle Growth. I think we have a blog version of that that I wrote as well. Um, because when you say, like, what are your general recommendations for building muscle? I mean, fuck. You got an extra two hours for me to go? I mean, that's a, 
That's an open ended question. Yeah. Um, You said besides training, which narrows it down a little bit. um, Even though I personally think the biggest mistake people make within muscle growth is training. I just want to say that because I think a lot of times people are like, okay, I I need to get in a calorie surplus. And I'm like, yep, you do. But your training is is half-assed. You're only in the gym three days a week. You don't have enough volume. You're not pushing it hard enough. Training is the stimulus that causes muscle growth to happen. Nutrition just helps you recover from it. Now, as far as nutrition goes, like general statements, again, like there's so much nuance that goes into it as far as periodizing diet properly, some, some nutrient timing factors that aren't super, super crucial, but for some people to help supplementation, all that kind of stuff, but low level, like low hanging fruit, creatine monohydrate every single day. Make sure you're taking that. That's non-negotiable in my opinion for muscle growth. It's just such a easy thing to do that is proven to work. Um, I just throw in my cringe drink. Same. Yeah. yeah. Um, the next one is, uh, obviously protein intake. You don't need a ton of protein. I would recommend to get 0.8 to one gram per pound of, um, animal source protein or highly bioavailable protein. If you can then add in everything else and see where you're at. I had this conversation with a female client literally just yesterday, actually, um, because sometimes if we, it, it depends on where you're at, obviously metabolically speaking, but there's times where, uh, a female clients performing hard, trying to build strength, trying to build muscle, and we increase their carbs, which I'm going to get to next. But then they start having a high portion of their protein intake coming from nut butter, oats, potatoes, rice, vegetables, things that aren't necessarily the most anabolic protein sources. So what I like to do is go, okay, we're going to try to get 0.8 to 1 gram per pound, which is like the bare minimum for leucine threshold muscle protein synthesis per day. But we're going to do that through sources that are mainly coming from animals because those are the most bioavailable and anabolic proteins we can get to opposed to powder. Um, no, cause powder is made from dairy. Dairy is an animal product, oh. um, opposed to vegan sources. Oh, okay. okay. Um, now there are, there is research studies that show vegan, uh, protein sources can be just as anabolic. The thing that they never talk about in the research studies is how difficult it actually is when you coach vegans, which we do. And we are more than happy to, especially somebody comes to us and they're vegan for ethical reasons. By all means, we will coach you through it and we understand and we respect it. If you're approaching it from health perspective, it's not always the right answer. There's very limited situations where being a vegan is healthier than consuming animal products. Being plant-based while consuming the right animal products is the healthiest thing you can do. It's very balanced. Now, um, it becomes difficult as vegan because you just have to eat so many carbs and so many other things just to get enough, or you're just, you're literally drinking a vegan protein shake with every meal, which is just unpractical and expensive as fuck. So point being is try to get that 0.8 to one gram per pound through like dairy, fish, steak, chicken, turkey, eggs, those kind of things. Then add in your uh, other sources. Um, So you're probably going to be sitting at like anywhere between one to 1.25 grams per pound is usually like the area I sit people in when we're trying to gain muscle and still maximize that. Um, fats are going to be, uh, bare minimum 0.3 grams per pound, higher end 0.5 grams per pound. Cause you are going to be trying to get to a surplus, but I also don't like going into a surplus because of fat. I'd rather get you to maintenance with a lower amount of fat that you can su- support hormonal health, which is way lower than people think. So most research on like physique athletes actually suggests 0.5 grams per kilogram, which is I mean, uh, so I think if I did the math correctly, it's like 35 grams of fat a day for me, which is very low. I didn't even get close to that low during my cut because it's so hard to eat that much and have any type of flavor or flexibility in your diet. Um, so you don't need to go that low. But the reason I say that is because people, 
people assume that you need way more fat than you do to support hormones. Now, if you were in a calorie deficit, it's going to give you a take a bigger hit if you have lower fats like that because your calories are low. And the calories are the big thing causing this. But research shows that if your calories are low and your fats are super low, it's going to just, it's a double whammy. It's not as good. But if you're approaching this from building muscle, you're not in a calorie deficit. You're at maintenance or above at least. So we know that that's not going to be an issue. So I'd rather have you on the lower end, which again is going to be higher than that, but let's say 0.4 grams per pound. And then I'm going to bring your carbs up as high as I can for your maintenance. And I'm going to really, really focus on training, um, sleep, stress management, all that stuff and squeeze out whatever I can. And then I'm just going to start reverse dieting your, your carbs up basically. And that's, that's your nutrition protocol. Um, you want more carbs because carbs are going to fuel training. They're going to fill muscle glycogen. They're going to be very difficult to store as fat and they're going to increase your total daily energy expenditure which means that your energy in the gym your energy throughout the day it, all that's going to increase because you're consuming more carbs totally and help recovery exactly so um yeah it's going to help recovery by blunting cortisol and helping your stress hormones like um it's just a better route to go and uh you know like it's kind of an exaggerated way of looking at it but it's a good analogy where like i think i've brought it up um, i might have brought it up on the podcast with him but martin mcdonald has that cup analogy where it's like he puts sand in the cup, it's protein, puts water in the cup, yep. it's uh, carbs, and then he puts oil in the cup and it's fat, and the oil rises to the top. And when you start overfeeding, no matter what, if you overfeed with carbs or fat, the oil is at the top, so it's going to spill over. So that's what's storing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a fact. Your body's going to start burning the carbs and storing the fat, and it doesn't mean don't eat fat because we need it. It also doesn't mean just eat overeat carbs as much as you can, but it just means that if we're going to overeat, it should be carbs and we should do it lightly and we should keep our fats in check while we do it. Totally. And that's the key to building muscle is going into a surplus, probably through carbohydrates and training really fucking hard. Yeah. You know, and then if you want to get into nuance, we could time the nutrients and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't matter nearly as much. For sure. So. All right. Well, Payal, there's your podcast. There you go. <laughs> So, all right, we got uh, we got another question here. It's coming from Megan Kinney. It says, "Have to I have to take a week off of the gym for intense oral uh, gum surgery? Just reversed up to twenty three hundred calories. I'm forty two year old female. Should I keep calories high with week off or come down a little bit? Usually, I do three to three and a half hours of heavy lifting a week and forty minutes of hit." Um. I would probably taper them down throughout the week. Um, keep fats and proteins the same, but if we just think of this logically speaking from an, like an energy pers- perspective, you're just not going to be burning nearly as many as much fuel, right? You're not burning as many calories. You're not using as many carbs throughout the week because you are not really moving much. You're resting and recovering, right? However, what I would say is this. like, Let's say you have this oral surgery on Monday, and let's say, and this is what I would recommend doing, pushing the intensity in the gym leading up to that. So um, if I'm leaving for a trip, uh, oftentimes if I can work with my schedule, like I will train, instead of taking Sunday off and then starting back on Monday, I will go from Saturday and then I just train Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and I just keep going because I know I'm traveling Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I'll just take all those days off. Yeah. Just give myself a good break. Push myself super hard and then give myself a break. So I would push yourself pretty damn hard leading into it. But the reason I say that is because let's say your surgery was on Monday and let's say you trained just as hard as you ever do all week and then even Sunday, like you trained your last session on Sunday, you're still recovering Monday. So I don't think you should cut carbs Monday. And if you cut carbs Monday because you're on pain pills and you're under, you go under and all that stuff. Okay. Don't cut carbs on Tuesday. You're still recovering from your training, but by like Wednesday or Thursday, you're probably not going to need more fuel to recover from that anymore. So point being is you can taper the carbs throughout the week. So let's say you you're eating 300 grams of carbs a day. 
keep them as is and then just follow your hunger signals. Like you'll notice, like if I eat my normal carb intake on a rest day, but I trained the day before, I'm fine. I'm hungry. It feels normal. I don't feel bloated. I don't feel like I'm eating too much. The next day, if I still haven't trained, I might feel like I'm starting to overeat a little bit. The day after that, I'm definitely not as hungry. I definitely feel like I don't need as many carbs. Most people will intuitively feel that way if you're eating like really clean food, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, because hunger signals and satiety signals are much harder to read if we're eating highly palatable foods. It's exactly why like uh, man versus food, I've used this example before, um, that TV show, he was doing the kitchen sink challenge, which they basically take a kitchen sink, they put it on the table, and they fill it with ice cream. They eat the whole fucking kitchen sink. It was so gross. And he was so close to finishing it. But he he couldn't stomach any more ice cream. So he ordered, and he was like so full, and he ordered uh, some french fries because they're highly palatable. There's carb, there's uh, seasoning, so salt, and there's fat from the oil, right? And the crunchy texture was different than ice cream. And that he ate those, and it literally spiked his hunger signals and allowed him to finish the kitchen sink challenge. So you can trick your body into hunger. And my, the reason I say that is because if you're not that hungry, but you're like, or, or you're, you're eating 300 grams carbs and you're not training, so technically your body probably doesn't need it and you intuitively probably would feel that way otherwise, but instead you do have ice cream or you have like potato chips, stuff like that, you'll probably be able to consume those calories pretty easily. Yeah. Whereas if you're like, you know what, I'm just going to eat like rice and potatoes and, you know, meats and eggs and whole grain toast and shit like that you're probably going to be easily able to go like, I don't need two slices of toast. I'm just going to do one. Or like, I don't need all this rice. I'm just going to have the meat and veggies. Like you'll be fine. So I would probably taper it off. Cause I think at the beginning of the week, you could still utilize it for recovery towards the end of the week. You're probably not going to need it. And uh, as long as you keep your food normal to what you usually eat, I think you're going to be easily able to kind of feel those hunger and satiety signals that will let you know, you'll probably be fine. Yep. Like you don't need it. You know, totally. So yeah, let's do one more. All right, we got one more question, guys. It comes from Ashley S. It says, having a hard time deciding on a goal because I like a little bit of everything. I am currently doing a cut and want to shed shed fat to look fit and athletic, but I also want to progress with strength, specifically in squats and pull-ups. I also want to be able to jump in with a hit workout with friends whenever the occasion presents itself. My question here is if my main goal is aesthetics, but I want to keep working on strength and still have a good aerobic system, what do I do for training? Does does it really come down to cycling goals throughout the year? Two answers. Number one, I don't think anything you just said is, is uh, um, conflicting with one another if aesthetics is fat loss. Because what you really just said to me is you want to get leaner, mm. right? Now, if you came to me, you're like, I really want to put on muscle mass, but I enjoy hitting PRs in the squat and I want to do more pull-ups and I'd love to do more HIIT training with friends. We're like, well, HIIT training is like cardio, so that's not going to help muscle growth. Pull-ups are going to be harder if you get bigger. And squats, they'll, you know, you'll improve your muscle tissue, but you're mainly going to be focusing on strength. So you could do way more volume by choosing other things. So it really depends on what you mean by aesthetic. So um, my two answers are this. Like if, if to you aesthetics means like I already have like the size and the shape of frame I want. Like I don't want to put on muscle tissue necessarily. I just want to look more defined. You probably just need to lose fat. And if you just need to lose fat, then I don't think any – I think everything is aligned. I think you should go into a calorie deficit because as long as you lower training volume – and you just increase the intensity of your sessions. I've seen countless people lose fat in PR, their squat, bench, or deadlift while doing it. Like, 
there's no reason why you can't get stronger while dieting for fat loss. And there's definitely no reason why you can't do more pull-ups because if you lose five pounds, it'll be easier to do pull-ups. So just maintain your strength yeah. and lose fat and you'll do more pull-ups. And then you can do the HIIT training because as long as you save enough energy to do some of those HIIT sessions with your friends, that's actually just going to contribute to more fat loss because you burn a lot of calories. Um, the only thing I would add into it is, is the occasional refeed or diet break as energy gets low. So if you know that like, your energy is starting to dip because you're getting closer to your fat loss goals, then I would probably have like two refeed days a week where like day one refeed is your squat and pull-up day where you really are trying to progress those so you have more energy for those. And day two is the hit session. So you can just kill it in the session and you have fun and you're not like dragging ass and in last place. Um, the other days you're in a deficit and you're monitoring training intensity accurately knowing that you're in a deficit trying to lose fat. Um, that's totally fine. And then the other answer is if you want to build more muscle tissue, which you may right now, or you may realize after that, because maybe you lose weight to get more defined, and you realize I actually don't have enough muscle tissue to be as defined as I wanted, which is very common. That's what happened to me at first. I lost a bunch of weight and was like, oh, now I'm just skinny. Like, I thought I was going to be jacked, like the dude on the cover of the magazine, and I wasn't. So I had to go through a muscle building phase. If that's the case, then I think you just need to, like, take a bird's eye view of the year and of all your goals. And instead of trying to attack them all at once, just know that you're more likely to accomplish them all and have them all at once later on. Yeah. So it's remembering what you want most versus what you want right now. And that means going through this fat loss phase while trying to get stronger. And then once you get stronger in the pull-ups and the squat and you're leaner, now you can go into a muscle building phase, use that strength to accumulate more volume to build muscle while eating a little bit more food and not being worried about being so lean. And you do that for six plus months. And then you come back to a fat loss phase where you focus on strength again. And I actually think that's a really smart thing to do because, you know, you can maintain muscle on lower volumes and you can still build strength. So why not go into a strength phase while you're cutting fat? There's no problem with that. The only reason I tell people not to is if they enjoy hypertrophy training more, um, which is my case. That's why I don't go into like usually like serious strength blocks if I'm doing fat loss phases. I just throw them in every once in a while when I need them. But then you would want to periodize it. Because again, I think if we're going to it, like I want all these things. Yeah, you're not going to get great at any of them. You're not yeah. going to get the best result at any of them. You're just going to do okay with a bunch of them. I would much rather have somebody stop and go, you know what? I'm going to look at this from a bird's eye view. I'm going to, I'm going to spread these goals out and I'm going to periodize them and just remember that like this time next year, I will be where I want to be. There you and go. I mean, Chip, my photo shoot is a perfect example of that. And that's why I did it and wanted to document it is because what I wanted was to be leaner with more muscle, but I knew it wasn't going to happen. Right. So I went through a strength phase at maintenance. Then I went through a muscle building phase. Then I went through another strength phase at maintenance. And then I finally went through a cut. I actually probably went through a couple more of both those phases first because it took two or three years, two and a half, three years before I went to a cut again. And now I am bigger and leaner than I was, which is what I really wanted right then. Mm. But I knew what I wanted most was that goal. And I would only get it later on if I periodized it properly. Totally. You know, so, um, I like it. That's my answer. I think that's the best way to go about that. Yeah. So, um, guys, already dropped all the links. Other than that, again, giantlifting.com. Uh, you can head over to that. We'll link that in the description of this podcast. We have a, a specific link to use. You can use the coupon code TCM5 to drop your shipping down, get 5% off uh, your total purchase. You can head over to firstform.com slash method to get all of your supplement needs and everything else from us at tailoredcoachingmethod.com. We appreciate you guys listening, and we'll catch you next time.